Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, as we chart the development of the club scene and its influence on British culture, we have a man who is a DJ phenomenon, the legendary pioneer of Notting Hill Carnival Good Time Sound System, the Rare Groove Movement, the Warehouse Scene, and Kiss FM, just to name a few that he's done. And he's the first black DJ to be awarded an MBE for his services. It gets even better. He's a Spurs fan. <laughs> Please welcome Mr. Good Times, Norman J, MBE. Hello, Norman. How are you, sir? I am great. Thanks for inviting me on. Actually. It's an absolute yeah. pleasure. I mean, we were talking before, and it's kind of surreal for me mm. because for seven years, I had my flat at the end of Southern Row. <laughs> Uh, so just to see and be talking with you now. So you were the profiteering bloke there. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was the guy letting people yeah. in to use my bathroom for a quid. Oh, five quid. Five quid, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So let's let's start off with your childhood. And can you describe what it was like for you being a working class black kid mm. in West London growing up in the 60s and 70s? Difficult, but, you know, there were certain things, you know, one accepted as normal that obviously with the passing of time, you realize they weren't normal, they weren't right. You know, racism was was rampant amongst certain sections of the community. You know, I'm the son of first generation Windrush that came to London or came to England in the 50s. You know, I was born in 1957 and living in an area which was a really deprived part of, of London then, Notting Hill, or Ladbroke Grove. You know, my parents were suffered that demeaning thing of no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And I've, I've told people who were interested, basically, as a family growing up, even though I was too young then, we lived in virtually every street within 10, well, not even, within 10 minutes walk of, say, Portobello Road. And it was the, the place where Britain had its first recognised um, race riot that's what the, the, the press yes. called it but you know we prefer to call it an uprising with, with the, the, the the teddy boys you know harassing blacks and foreigners and anybody else and you know even at that time in Labra Grove the far right had an office in, in Notting Hill Gate and they set about kind of to terrorize and undermine the community even then and my parents realized well you know we need or they needed to move out of that. So in the very early 60s, my mum and dad moved to Acton, three miles away. But all my extended family members remained in the Grove, because that's where you first went when you got off at Victoria or Cannon Street Tube. So what was uh, home life like for you growing home, up? Uh, home life for me was happy. It was stable, which uh, I'm so pleased to be able to say. And my parents, particularly my dad, by Caribbean standards was, was very, very liberal. He worked nights in the mid to late 60s. You know, he held down three jobs and going to night school to get his papers because, you know, he, he worked as a civil engineer for London Transport at the behest of the British government, you know, <laughs> who, who came and harvested, basically, to use that term, black people from the Caribbean to come and drive the buses work in the post office, work on the tube trains, such was the shortage of manpower, or perceived shortage of, of manpower in England post-war then. So it was a very difficult time. They struggled to make sure that myself and my siblings had a better chance in life, better start in life. But, you know, we were still black, working class, living in a deprived area. Bearing in mind, yeah. this is pre-gentrification of yeah, Notting pre, Hill. Yeah, pre-gentrification of Notting Hill. Because I used to, as a kid, used to play in on the bomb sites because that's what they were. Some of those big houses you see now that, that sell for millions and trillions. Well, some of them were badly damaged in the war and left. So quite a, and left like that. So quite a few kids, you know, of my age, my generation, who lived and were brought up around there, remember it well. I mean, I've got, Guys like Danny John Jules, who's an actor. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew Danny from there. You know, despite living amongst all that rubbish, some good kids, talented kids, came out of that that area at that time. You know, even Robert Elms, great Robert Elms. Right, yeah. Yeah. But from what I understand, Robert and his family moved away pretty early on. 
but you know, a few of us remained there. Um, and I have a special bonding with, with Notting Hill that prevails still to this day. I mean, when I was a kid growing up there, I'd walk down Portobello Road, you know, all the market stall holders, ask after my mum and dad by name. You know, that, that culture's all, all, all changed, sadly. But then I became involved in, in the Notting Hill Carnival. I mean, I never used yeah. to go as a kid because that was something, oh, the old folks do all that, you know. I heard you weren't really into the Notting Hill no, Carnival. No, I wasn't, wasn't into it at all. You know, I didn't culturally relate. That was the thing. You know, I'm born in England. I'm English. It's only, my skin's different. But, you know, I went to a school where I had black mates, Irish mates, Jewish mates, you know, and came from an integrated place. You know, the amount of lodgers that my mum used to put up, Irish lodgers, you know, without casting any aspersion on where they came from, the colour of their skin. You know, we didn't know racism. For sure. Yeah. I love that about yeah. your family, that, yeah. would, that they would do that. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, what I said. They were quite liberal, you know. Yeah. They didn't, you know, colour was no barrier to them. How did you get into record collecting? And... Oh, well, the, the record thing, well, through, through my parents, you know, they bought records. My dad bought a radiogram, Bush radiogram, which we still have. He bought that in 1960 on higher purchase, on tick, <laughs> where you pay like, you know, two quid or a quid a week for the next 50 odd weeks. And, you know, as, as kids, again, you know, my parents were trying to do the best by us, trying to get us interested in music. You know, he bought a secondhand piano from Portobello Road Market and we got the piano home, but it was tuneless. We couldn't afford to get it tuned. <laughs> oh, yeah. And... You know, my brother and I, Joey, we showed no interest in it, but my sisters did. Yeah, my sisters sort of self-taught chords on the piano. But what interested me was the radiogram and records from when I was about four or five years old. And it just stimulated my curiosity because as kids, we weren't allowed anywhere near it. It was my dad's pride and joy. Until one day he thought we were, because we showed so much interest in it, he encouraged us, yeah, and I just loved playing records on a, on a radiogram, and I guess that's where my love of music and collecting of records began. It's a lovely mm. story about your dad giving mm. you a fiver to collect records. Yeah, yeah. I think when I was about nine or ten years old, maybe a little bit older, every year we'd hold a Christmas family Christmas party, and then this one particular year, my dad entrusted me to go and buy the records. Gave me... Five pound note, which was probably about as big as this table in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to jump on the bus, uh, go to Shepherd Bush Market, because that's where all the record shops were that I knew. And I'd hang out at those record shops all day. Too intimidated to go and buy records during the daytime. I'd wait until all the big guys bought all their records. Is that right? Yeah, just before closing. <laughs> and I'd be the last customer in the shop. But then... By then, I knew what I wanted because I'd heard all the records on repetition for hours. And I'd go and I'd, I'd buy the records and bring them home. And, uh, yeah, my dad approved. Your dad was into music predominantly from black performers. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what he had access to. But even in, in the Caribbean, you know, they, their radio was from America right. or, or South America. So there was huge sort of uh, jazz about my, my dad liked Tijuana Brass, South American music. He liked Puerto Rican music. He liked Cuban music. Gotcha. So, you know, I had... But his all... taste was actually quite diverse. Yeah, really yeah. diverse then. And the um, reason why I ask is because I'm just trying to get a sense of you and mm. then the motivation to do what you did mm. yeah. in the forthcoming years mm. because couple the fact mm. that your dad liked an eclectic range of music, yeah. but then... There's this opposite side of that where yeah. you see no black performers on TV yeah. or in the magazines. Yeah, that's why it made it even more important for me. I remember it was a big event when there was, you know, a, a black artist appearing on television, you know, in black and white. You know, the whole family would run around the television, which was a rental in those days. We couldn't black and white to watch, you know, the Four Tops or the Temptations or Marvin Gaye. And I loved those records and every opportunity I got to see them on TV. They used to be a um, predating Top of the Pops. There used to be this, uh, I think it was one of the first um, music, pop music um, shows on the television um, called Ready, Steady, Go. And I'm talking 1963, 64, 
and I'm listening and watching music like that. So and soaking it all in like a sponge, you know, I became an avid radio listener, even though there wasn't that much choice then. There was no Radio One or anything like that. It wasn't until the mid to late 60s that there was a, a pirate station a ship moored off from the British Isles, I think in the North Sea. I think it was called Radio Caroline or one of them, but it was a, a ship. And the DJs used to broadcast three miles offshore outside of territorial waters. And one of the DJs there, Tony Blackburn, used to champion black music. He played loads of Motown records. And I thought, wow, this is for me. I'm hearing this stuff on the radio in mono through a single earpiece on my transistor radio <laughs> that I bought from Woolworth for about 150. <laughs> uh, but at the same time... Um, the live inverted commas music scene, black music scene in the Caribbean community was massive. Yes. Reggae, ska, you know, that, that those were staple records for us in our house and the kids up my peers at school. I remember converting all my white mates in the late 60s to get into sort of Trojan and, and reggae. And some of them did and some of them didn't. The ones that did have retained that love affair from then till now. Your brother, Jerry. Mm. You teamed up as a bit of a partnership. Yeah, well, it, we eventually became a partnership, but we weren't. Um, we were both opposite ends of the black music spectrum. I mean, I started off sort of liking pop music, soul, um, as it was called then, ska, blue beat, because I was exposed to all of that at an early age. It was all good to me. And I think it was in the early 70s that I really became a soul boy and was into all, all, you know, all the original Chicago soul groups. But I liked dancing as well. So any black dance record, The Sound of Philadelphia, cool records that I didn't know were jazz that I liked. And I subsequently learned as I got older, oh, these are jazz records. But the biggest discovery for me was discovering years later that some of the great pop records that I liked and loved were actually cover versions by uncredited black artists so they were originally yeah written performed by black performance but, yeah yeah but they weren't allowed to such were the, the laws then they couldn't come and perform in england because most of them at that time never had passports they couldn't vote <laughs> believe it or not i remember in my lifetime if you were black in america in the 60s you couldn't vote so therefore you couldn't really travel except around the, the, the country so what they did in the uk was find white artists to re-record those songs. And those are the first songs that I heard and loved. And thought, wow, they sound really funky, or they sound really soulful. And then a decade or so later, <laughs> I discovered that they're not. And I'm like, wow, I was fascinated by that. I mean, I love both versions of a lot of songs now. But at that time, you know, it was an age of discovery for me. And then subsequently I learned, you know, that there were reasons for that, political reasons, why you couldn't get these sort of records here in the UK. Because at that time, I'm talking sort of mid-60s to early 70s, you know, America's involved in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. The black civil rights movement, you know, was gaining traction. And there was the struggle going on, I'm sure, which you could relate to. For sure. Culturally for yourself. but And the British government at that time, was fearful that that might spread, that racial tension and unrest would spread here. So you couldn't get certain records here. Records which I knew about or heard about. So they would see some records as like some form uh, of propaganda. Yeah, propaganda or subversive or incitive. Yeah. You know, I, I knew of records like James Brown's, you know, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. It was a, a new black consciousness which I very much bought into. I was of that age where I'm like, wow, this is my newspaper. This was where I found, you know, got my, my history lesson from. Because um, you couldn't read about it. You couldn't see it on the television. So how else would you find out about it? You know, the great oral tradition in the black thing was singing mm -hmm. and songwriting. You know, the messages came out in the songs. And quite a lot of those um, songs then are still relevant and valid now. You know, they're, they're in, enduring. So quite a lot of the strife that's going on now isn't new. <laughs> it's been there 30, 40, 50 years because 
commentators sung about it then. So, yeah, it's amazing. Black music history is absolutely amazing. It's the feeling that you get from music has the power to unite, but yeah. it has political power yeah, as well of course to send a message to course, to yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. How else do you get the message? 100%. You're not going to, you know, in the days like now, obviously you've got um, the, the internet and social media means, but, you know, which version of the truth are you going to absorb? So Notting Hill, good times. Have mm. to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was such a legendary weekend. Mm. Best time that mm. anyone could ever have. Mm. You playing Notting Hill Carnival for the first time in 1980. Yeah. How did that performance go? <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> um, I was young, naive, and absolutely fearless. I mean, going into Carnival in those days was a real sort of test of one's nerve. Because, you know, like I said, we were young, untried, untested. And um, you have to remember, uh, this is off the, the, the back of um, the 1976 uprising at Carnival. Yeah. Which yeah. I was part of, witnessed and understood. And, Scary, that. Yeah. And for the years following that, they were really dark times. Not only for Nottingham Carnival, but just being black. Because up until that point, the police used to harass us and arrest us and do whatever they felt they could get away with, which was everything in those days. There, were, there was no restraint until any community, as you're probably aware, will only take so much. Then there comes a line that if you cross it, we will explode. And that happened here in 76, well, in London. And, yeah, I was of that age to be a victim of it and understand it and fight against it. It kind of, after that, it really politicised me. You know, it was a wake-up call. I'm thinking, well, no, this can't go on forever. This, is, this isn't normal. This isn't right. So, yeah, we took to the streets because going to Carnival then, I'd never been in a crowd with so many black people, never seen it before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was... An amazing feeling to be part of that. Yes, it was violent, it was dangerous, and it was wrong, the violence. But the end result is that certain laws on police practice and race relations in this country changed. Yes. You know, something positive did come out of it. And like I said, it was just, it took about three or four years, because we came there in 1980, four years after Carnival, um, after the uprising at Carnival in '76. And Carnival was still perceived, you know, as a inward-looking black ghetto thing. Because a lot of my white mates wouldn't come there. A lot of my Asian friends would, wouldn't come there. You know, they, we, we'd go to clubs together, go partying, house parties together. But when it came to Carnival, ah, no, I don't think so. Because that was a pervading feeling there because of the negative publicity that surrounded Carnival for so many years after that. And I knew it'd be a long process to be able to win the confidence of my friends and the wider community that they could come there in relative safety. That's what I loved yeah. about going to Good Times yeah. was that it was incredibly diverse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the way we wanted it to be. I wanted yeah. it to be a reflection of all my friends, all the people I knew, all the people I hung out with, which weren't just black kids. You know, like I said, you know, all my Irish mates came there, Yeah, you know, all my Jewish mates that came there, my gay and lesbian friends would come there, and I wanted it to be a safe space for, for everybody. All, all I had to do was just provide the soundtrack of the greatest weekend of your life. What was the turning point for you then? The turning point was when we arrived at Southern Row. You know, yeah. um, but those who don't know, there's kind of two spells. Between 1980 and 1990, we were on... Cambridge Gardens. Cambridge Gardens, yeah, outside number 37, you know, in the epicentre of Carnival. And I always used to think, I was always of the opinion that in order for us to grow, we needed to, to move away from where we were because I was becoming rapidly disillusioned with it because of the violence and just didn't like it. And I just really wanted a clean slate to start again. So in 1989, there was a vote that Carnival would be expanded. And I remember going to the sound system meeting later that year, and there must have been about 200 of us in that room, and I think I was the only one that stood up and voted to move. And when they did expand it, you know, a mile north of where we were, 
it was like leaving London and deciding, yeah, we'll go to Newcastle. And play. Yeah. It was that far, <laughs> it was that far north. No one else wanted it. No that. one else wanted it. And like, yeah, we'll go there. So we start with a fresh canvas. When I went to, because I had first pick of all the sites because I opted, I was the first to opt to move. And I always, in my mind's eye, had my eye on the Sainsbury's car park, which I'm glad <laughs> we never went there. Uh, and then when I discovered, went to the meeting when they were allocating the sites, the Sainsbury's car park had gone. And I'm like, God, what do I do now? Where do we go now? Cause that's the only place. I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> and I remember coming out of the offices just opposite the Sainsbury's car park there, walking down the steps, uh, walking along Southern Row, and I stopped and I had an epiphany. I had a Bart Simpson light bulb moment. And Is that I, just after the bridge, you kind of walk down those little steps it. into the yeah, alley? Yeah, 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 that's it. And I'm like, it's, the vision came to me. This is where we need to play. And my brother and my dad and my uncles were pretty skeptical. But I said, listen, it's good. give me five years here and we'll have this place rocking. Well, it proved to be and the proved, right decision. Yeah, absolutely. Never regretted the decision to go there. It was naturally right because it just meant that people could come there, make it a single destination. You know, with all the chaos going around at the top of the alley on the main road, down here there's a sanctuary, there's safety, and you can come and, and party. Maybe people don't know, but mm. in the early days of Notting Hill Carnival, it's kind of hardwired in reggae music. Yeah, it still is. And... and I think that's a good thing. One of the reasons why I came to, to play at Carnival was to offer something else on the menu, you know, reggae, soca. It's always, which I think is, is a good and right thing. Um, Carnival is underpinned musically by the Afro-Caribbean experience. Soca, calypso, um, reggae, and black music from the Caribbean in all its forms. But my raison d'etre for going in there was, you know, being black, British, going clubbing, going partying, that didn't have an outlet. That wasn't being represented. So if you're going to come there, come there and do something different. Add to the experience. Add to the collective experience. So we came there, and I'm playing jazz, I'm playing funk, and all, in the subsequent years, all the emerging genres that would come out, like hip-hop, electro, you know, we were the purveyors. We were the first people to play those sort of records at Carnival. Sure all the way up to 1989. And then when we moved in 1990 to Southern Row, I just carried on the tradition of playing great records. And by then I'd expanded the music repertoire a bit wider because, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. I liked a lot of 60s bands, pop bands. So I know, you know we were the only sound system, black sound system. We played The Clash. We played a lot of white records that nobody would play for various reasons at Carnival. Would you then call yourself like an instinctive yeah. DJ? Yeah, always instinctive. Yeah. yeah. I'm not pre-programmed. I'm not a robot. I don't know what I'm going to do until I get there. I'm a reactive DJ. If the crowd are enjoying a certain style and they trust you, you can really take them on a proper music journey because you've got all day to do that. For sure. Yeah. You went to New York yeah. to see your uncle Leo. Yeah. Before you played your first Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah. This was in 1979. Yeah. Spent the whole of the summer, three, four months in, in, in New York. Did that well, prove to be a catalyst? Yeah, for your of course. Vision yeah, yeah, it then? did. It just reinforced everything that I was I aspired to do. I watched it unfold in front of me there and thought, this is the, the playbook. This is what I need to do. I came back really inspired, fearless. And learned on the job, really. You can't always play with people's emotions with, with records. Certain stuff that they'll like and other records they won't like. But then it's a, it's a process, isn't it, of discovery, you know. And I loved all of that. You know, every year in the early days of Carnival, every bank holiday, just breaking the shrink wrap of brand new tunes that no one else had heard or played before. I heard about the Carnival mm. That there were often sound clashes. Yeah. Which you didn't really want to be No, a I was a soul boy. I wasn't into the, the culture of sound clash. My brother was because, you know, my brother was a ruster from, from the early 70s. He came from that culture. I never did. I was more sort of soul boy, stroke mod. You know, I like clothes. I like football. I like dressing up. I like girls. Um, I like partying. I like dancing. You know, 
Um, and it was all liberation for me, less kind of spiritual or political. Even though I liked the music, you know, I used to go to sound clashes with my brother in the early days, more family sibling support rather than really being into it. It's one time that he convinced uh, you, I think, 1982. Yeah, and one year... Against my better judgment, I was against it from the beginning. I didn't want to go and do a sound clash, not at Carnival, because the atmosphere was always too highly volatile. And at a certain point, as soon as it got dark, it would be toxic and dangerous. And I didn't want to expose any of us, any of my family or friends, or expose our equipment to that. But one year, yeah, we played in the cage just in, on Acklam Road with two or three other sound systems and... Uh, as soon as it got dark, I descended into chaos. Never going, never doing that again. No, sound system culture is not for me. Or the clash culture isn't for me. So, yeah, because when we went there, we always used to have the initials GT on our sound, on our boxes and our equipment, which stood for Great Tribulation. Yes. In the beginning, when my brother used it as a sort of brutal reggae sound system, he went through Great Tribulations building it. That's what the GT stood for. Then when I went to New York in the summer of 79, you know, Sheik's massive good times, and suddenly the penny dropped. Yep, GT, that's what our sound system's called, good times. And the lyrics to that song became my philosophy for playing out, and, you know, these are your good times, leave your cares behind. And that's the vibe <laughs> that everyone felt when they yeah, went yeah, to, yeah, to see you play. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. You played there for 32 years. Yeah, I think all 31, but because one year I took one, one year off, missed it terribly, and came back. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. You weren't ha happy bunny that night. <laughs> but what, yeah. what, what was the reason for? Well, partly marketing, mm -hmm. um, just to take a break from it, because it is becoming monotonous, but in a great way. But sometimes when you take something away from somebody, they cherish it or they remember that they loved it. So when we came back the following year, we came back to even bigger attendances and crowds than we, we had before that. So it kind of just re reignited the enthusiasm again, particularly in me, because I always felt frustrated in the latter years there, um, playing at the carnival, because you know I always had grand ambition for it. But because of the, the prevailing laws and rules from Kensington and Chelsea Council, we couldn't put on any live acts, couldn't put on any PAs. That I always found frustrating. You know, working, you know, in the, in the early 90s, you know, I was working for a record company. And, you know, I knew loads of artists and things that these people were, or this guy or this girl would be just right to put on a carnival. You know, I always wanted to put on people like Jocelyn Brown. Right. Yeah, at carnival. Could you imagine? Yeah, that would be uh, amazing. I put all those, subsequently, I put all those artists on in clubs, but I was never able to realize an ambition of putting them on live in the street. You know, this is this is not a festival in a field. This is not a, a, a nightclub, a subterranean nightclub. This is a, take them outside of their comfort zone and put them on at a street party. It never happened, unfortunately. That's a shame it didn't. <laughs> Kiss FM. I want to talk about that. Yeah, Kiss. Yeah. That was pretty iconic. I mean, it blew up. Yeah, of course. Usually, it did. Because yeah. of what, your show. Mm. Well, no, I can't take the credit for that 100%. I think in the early days, you know, I'm one of the founder members of the old Kiss FM, so not to confuse anybody listening. Um, Kiss FM in London started as a pirate station in 1984. And I was one of the original founder member DJs, along with um, Gordon Mack who's in charge of My Soul, mm -hmm. you know, Bless Gordon, Tosca Jackson. Tosca's a DJ on that station still there. And uh, he, he was the guy that approached you, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. and the late George Power, who, right. yes. you know, who provided the financial clout, really, because without George, you know, we wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a brilliant time. And every Saturday afternoon... Um, I used to do my show called the the original Rare Groove show. This was before the the Rare Groove thing sort of got traction and became something. Mm -hmm. um, I used to do that one till three on a Saturday afternoon, and then following me at three till five was um, Jonathan Moore, 
and yes. from Cold Cut. Which you brought in. Yeah, and th those four hours were unbelievable. And, you know, it gripped London. It was the London soundtrack, you know, for a couple of years. You know, every trendy shop, every antique shop, every market store. Did you know then at that time? No, not not really. That it was going to blow up? Not, not, not really. We knew it would become big, but we didn't. I wasn't really conscious of that until... You know, started to play out more regularly. You know, people go, oh, I heard the show today. It was absolutely wicked. But the difference for us was that we went to the same clubs that a lot of listeners um, went to. We were into the same fashion, same art. You know, it was a really great time to be young in London and not sort of mainstream. And But the great thing for us is we were perceived as being very cool. So, yeah, Which that, is like uh, the North Star of everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the Style magazines yes. helped us okay. because they picked up on us really early. Jonathan and I were always in the face magazine or ID magazine or, or you know, the important opinion-forming areas of media picked up on us, whereas previously in my situation, I've, even though I've been doing it for years, I was always invisible, but picked up by the right discerning ears and eyes. Probably the best thing from an outsider perspective. Yeah. Probably the best thing about it is that you guys controlled the direction and the content yeah. that you put out. Yeah. Like as we were saying before, mm. before you know this episode yeah. started recording. Yeah. Some genres of music, mm. you know, their their lineage would reach this ceiling point. Yeah, absolutely. And because we were pirate. You know, in my case, I didn't really care. You know, I would play the 15-minute long version of, you know, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, you know, or, you know, 10-minute long Curtis Mayfield tracks, you know, like, what's it? Uh, like, it'll come to me. But anyway, I presumed when I was doing those shows that those listening would know about those, know those records. And it came as a bit of a shock to realise they didn't know those records because I'd go shopping, you know, to record shops in Soho and secondhand record shops in Camden and Notting Hill. And the people there would go, Norman, you played this thing, this track on Saturday. Everyone's coming in asking for it. And I'm like, whoa. And then suddenly the few copies that were there, the prices were double, sometimes sure. triple. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when I realized that we had real power to break records, but we weren't only doing that for old records, we were doing it for new records as well, because it was a case of, now that I've got your attention, trust my judgment, I'm playing this because I love it, and I'm kind of turning you on to it. So it's teaching about the history, which I, for me was always important, the history of black music, because up until then, nobody was able to play, as far as I was concerned, play that music properly from a black perspective. It was always white DJs, privileged and entitled, sitting there playing records and dictating our tastes. And I'm like, well, when I went out to a party in Notting Hill on Saturday night or I went to a blues dance in Brixton, this isn't what, you know, your taste isn't what we're liking, what we're, we're playing. So I said about peer group DJs like the late Paul Trouble Anderson, mm -hmm. you know, we were the first wave of, part of the first wave of black DJs to get any sort of recognition, really. Trevor Nelson, Jazzy B., from soul to soul, there was a, a wave of us that, that came through at that time, you know, playing music that we thought every, everyone knew. And I quickly realized they don't know this stuff. You know, for years they've been hoodwinking us that they did, but they didn't. They didn't know. And that added to our appeal, that added to our allure, you know. We were the real underground of London. I love that. I've got this strong you know, energy, the freedom of expression mm -hmm. and creativity, yeah. uber important yeah, to you. Yeah, it was to me then because, you know, I'd, I'd never had that freedom. I always knew that if we were given the opportunity, you know, at that time, the, the BBC weren't going to ring me up and offer me a show. So it kind of spurred the, the do-it-yourself ethic. All On right. that point then, yeah. warehouse parties. Yeah. Which is something that you... Yeah, I was... Did for some time. Yeah, did. I was behind, you know, some of the major warehouse parties in London at that time. Very influential ones, that as well. You did that under an alter ego as well. Yeah, my alter ego was Shaken Finger Pop, mm -hmm. an old Motown record from the late 60s by Junior Walker, which just seemed very apt 
because the shake and finger pop was a dance. Only those in the know would know that. But it gave me license to expand the repertoire of black music even further. Instead of sort of playing all, all the chart R&B and soul of the day, I realized I was sitting on a black music archive, which I was itching to play to anyone who'd want to hear it or listen to it. And it kind of just took off. You know, it was the antithesis to the mainstream pop and stuff that was going on at the time, which, you know, I don't condemn that. It, it needed it because mm -hmm. then it put what someone like me was doing into, you know, a greater relief. So you could either this or that. <laughs> and a lot of people, you know, young people in London at that time didn't want that, being force-fed that in a controlled way. Because remember, this is pre-internet. So they controlled, I say they in inverted commas, controlled what you heard, when you heard it, and told you when you could come out to hear it and not. You know, I didn't come from a culture of, I'm not a drinker, I'm a lifelong teetotaler. Mm -hmm. So going to pubs was never my thing. You know, and the closing time on a Saturday night when they kicked you out, you staggered home drunk. You know, people of my generation, 10 o'clock, you're just getting ready to go out. We're all night people. We're night owls. You know, I'll come home at 10 o'clock in the morning, not at 10 o'clock at night. There was you and Judge Jules, when you named Judge Yeah, Jules. Judge Jules. Yeah, Jules was a, a partner of mine. You know, we, we were great mates. We still are, actually. Mm -hmm. Even though Jules's um, career as a DJ, house DJ, went into the stratosphere, and people used to come at me, well, Norman, how come Jules is getting all the plaudits for this and you're not? I said, listen, <laughs> you know, I'm happy where I am. I don't, don't aspire to that. You know, that's his choice. Good luck to him, and you know, he does so with my blessing. I never had felt that feeling of competitiveness. You know, I'm comfortable in my space. I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. So therefore, I never felt I was a threat to anybody out there on, in DJ land, and vice versa. You know, I don't feel intimidated or threatened by anybody. I do what I do because I can do it. I've earned the right. That's what I tell myself. I do what, what I like that? now. Yeah. Um, it takes a while for yeah, of course. people to figure that out for themselves. I'm still yeah. paying my dues. You know, <laughs> even though I've been DJing, you know, close on 50 years, still paying my dues. But I'm really pleased of the legacy of all of that. It's opened the doors for people of colour, not just black kids. Kids from difficult backgrounds, whether they be black, white, Asian, you know, to set yourself up as an example that, well, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, I never preach... Mm -hmm. But subliminally, I hope they get the message, you know, that things are difficult out there. Instead of blaming everybody else, take responsibility for it. Find your own path. It's out there. You've just got to find it. That's great advice. Mm. I just talk about your last warehouse party that you did, because <laughs> yeah, there's a cool yeah. story about yeah. this. Because previous to this, you never really had any issues with the old bill. No. Well, this time... I did. When, shaky. <laughs> yeah, I did when we were having the house parties, and I totally understood that. You know, I'm old enough to remember, you know, in January 1981, when you know 13 black kids burned to death in a house fire house party in Deptford. Still remember that like it was yesterday. That was dread, and the government, the country, did nothing about that. Didn't acknowledge them. Then black lives didn't matter. Now, black lives don't matter. But. I was doing that, and I remember thinking, oh, I need to slow down on doing these parties because basically, you know, the more you do, the more they're building a dossier on what you do. You know, I, I, I understood that, even though there was no cameras present. or, But, you know, you knew the authorities knew, and they were just building a case against you. For sure. Yeah. Because you did have, yeah. you know, thousands of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember one time, well, I think the last party we, we did was in Southwark on the north side of the, the bridge. I mean, it's all redeveloped now, but there used to be not a studio, I wouldn't call it a studio, a church or something like that that stood on the north bank of the Thames. And we'd gone in there, it's like a cup, we were promoting it, not having secured it. We didn't even know if we could get in, but we produced the flyers. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're definitely coming to that New Year's Eve. And I remember we were there in overalls 
I remember Jules had stuck a squatter's notice on the wall because Jules was a first or second year student at LSE studying law. So you'd think he'd know. <laughs> so, yeah, we trusted him. That's how I gave him his nickname, um, was the judge. Because, yeah, I'm divulging Absolutely. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. but I, I said, who knows, Jules? You know, one day in 10 or 20 years' time, I might be standing before you. <laughs> you know, your, your, your future's preordained, so to speak. But anyway, we got a visit um, from the City of London police because there are two within the London metropolitan area. There's the City of London police mm-hmm. who wear different helmets. I don't know if you, you were aware of that. I, and no, then, I wasn't aware of this. And no. then there's the Metropolitan Police. So different the, sets of police on, yeah, the, on, yeah. on either side of the bridge. Yeah, well, no, it's just the City of London. Okay. Yeah, there's the City of London and then there's the rest of London. Gotcha, okay. So that afternoon, I'm trying to think now, Anyway, well, one of the big wigs from the City of London came down. He had so many stripes down his arm. And he went to Jules, because I'd already schooled Jules in how you talk to them. I said, Jules, I reminded him that, Jules, you're white, you're middle class. Look him straight in the eye. When you speak to him with your posh accent, they're never going to question you. But they would me. And I remember standing next to Jules in a pair of ovals and a broom, just <laughs> <laughs> earwigging. And, and the police questioned Jules. And his then girlfriend asked him what what was going on here. He already knew, this is a police officer, he already knew about five or six of them came down and visited, which just illustrates the difference. Because if I didn't have white involvement in that party, we'd have been rushed with dogs, bands, batons, all of that. But because these are middle-class white kids, you know, Jules just said, you know, we're at the LSE, we're students, student union, holding a Christmas party here. And then the couple went, well, I hate to inform you, but you're not holding a party here. And Jules was like, well, why not? And Jules led him to the squatter's notice. And, and the guy and the couple went, yeah, very good. And he said, you're studying law, are you? Just, you know, right, giving Jules a wry smile. And he said, well, let me tell you something. I don't want to rain on your parade here. I know what you're doing here, but you can't do it here today. And I'm like, Jules was arguing, trying to argue the point. And, but he said, it's not going on here, but if you can find somewhere else, it can go on there. And uh, Jules was still trying to argue, but I saw straight away that basically, in a coded way, he was telling us, I don't want to spoil your party. You can do it here, but you can't do it there. And because Jules didn't understand that there was two types of police. And then the, the copper explained. He said, this, let me just remind you, you can't squat Crown property in the City of London. So squatting in the City of London is absolutely legal. You can't do it. But what you do in the Met, you it's know, up to you. it's up to you. <laughs> so I, I, I looked across the bridge thinking, God, we've got to move it. Let's stop arguing with this lot. We've still got four or five hours to set this thing up. So I, I looked across, standing on the bridge, looked across, thought, oh, that building's empty. My sister used to work there. It used to be the telecoms place. So I rang my sister. I said, that this place, this office is on the Thames. Isn't that the place you used to work? She said, yeah, all the stuff got moved out years ago. It's derelict. So I went to Jules, right, we're going in there. So we moved, all, packed up all the stuff, moved across the bridge with the police watching us. They, didn't, they made no attempt to stop us. We got into the building, which was open, went up to about the ninth or 10th floor, set up all the, all the, all, all the gear. And about fifteen hundred people showed up. Wow! And then, the, but crazy. the Met came there in the middle of the night to raid it, to to stop it. And I knew exactly why they they were there because there was a number of people doing illegal parties. And what one or two of them in cahoots with the local villains were doing were coming there, confiscating the drinks, the bar take, confiscating any drugs and doing other nefarious things there as well. I had no proof, but I knew that was what was going on, talking to other promoters, doing what I was doing. And I remember they came into the building. Luckily, we were about nine or ten floors up, so they had to run up all the stairs, so we got word that they were coming. Jules said, well, where should we hide the money? Where should, you know?" So I said, just put them in a bag, put our coats over it, and let's lie over them like we're drunk, like we're asleep. And two of them came in, 
and they started frisking everyone's bags, tipping them all up. What are they searching for? The drugs and the money. For sure, yeah. You know, and one of them went, well, there's obviously nothing here. They must have kept it somewhere else. And that's when I knew. So I remember going back out on the microphone telling everybody, this is the last party, because uh, I knew the writing was on the wall for us. Um, we got away with so many. We'd never been raided, never been busted after about six or eight parties that year. And it's a great time to stop. And I remember everybody groaning. Okay, and I said, ah, you can't stop doing these parties. I said, well, we're going to have to, because our card's marked now. For sure. They know who we are. You moved on from that point. Yeah. We went legal, we went into clubs. Yeah. Uh, our warehouse party, outfits, I mean, Good Times was a sound system, was the kit that we used, but I was playing under my shaken finger pop moniker and Jules's crew, they're from North London, you know, Hampstead, Highgate, that they were known as Family Function. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's Family Function, shaken finger pop parties. Legendary. The club scene at the time was dominated by white DJs. Mm. Even though you probably yeah. had some black DJs that were playing, yeah, well, yeah, and and you mentioned earlier George Mao was actually one of them, right? Yeah, a, he's a Greek guy. Yeah, Greek Cypriot. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and he was playing the type of music that you loved. Yeah, you know, and that's why he had such a large black following, or predominantly black following, you know, because through him, he, you know, doing his um, Sunday nights at Crackers, black kids, uh, inner city black kids had a focus somewhere to go and hear the music they really wanted um, to hear that you'd never hear outside or anywhere else. You'd hear sort of commercial variants of it, which is all good because I was into that as well. Mm -hmm. But if you really wanted to get to the core of the music, you had to go somewhere like like, like Crackers, which used to be on the top end of Wardour Street. I've got to ask you, 2002, you Mm. were awarded an MBE. Yeah, out of the blue. Yeah, that was a real shock. So can you talk us through how you felt when you received the letter? Oh, yeah. Well, I think I was doing a DJ tour of Scandinavia. And that time I was working on BBC Radio London at my show there. And my producer there uh, was trying to get in contact with me. I'm like, I just got into a gig about four or five o'clock in the morning, just nodding off to sleep. And then the phone rings. I'm like, what the F are you calling me for? Oh, Norman, where are you? I think I was somewhere in Sweden or Denmark or something like that, but I was coming home the next day. He said, uh, um, the Prime Minister's office has been trying to get in contact with you. And obviously he was fishing, trying to find out what it was. I had no idea what it was. And um, I thought it was just another game show hoax because at that time there was this thing that uh, a lot of people were doing, these sort of game show hoaxes and pranks. And I'm like, please, I'm not really up for this. I'm he said, no, you know, you need to phone this number, ask for this person. And I thought, yeah, I'm not doing that now. So I get home a couple of days later and I, I get a phone call at my mum's house asking to speak to me. And I'm like, well, you know, who is this? And they said, oh, well, this is the Prime Minister's office. I'm like, yeah. So she gave me a code, access code, to, to dial in. She said, we've been trying to, to reach you because, you know, um, you've been awarded an MBE. I'm like, what? You know, this was so off the scale. You know, it's not, never something that's... Just totally out of the blue. Totally out of the blue. And, you know, MBEs. People like us, people like me, we don't get MBEs. But anyway, I said, well, and I was still really sceptical. I said, if this, if this is true, you send me the official correspondence to my home address. And only then I might believe it and sure enough next day first post with the royal stamp royal seal on it it came through the door and i opened it up i'm like whoa completely staggered you know that i've been offered an mbe and i was sworn to secrecy because you get awarded it um six months before you actually go to the palace to receive it so you have to sit on it for months and months yeah and not tell anyone about it yeah because what the reason why that is i totally get that is that you can't go public with that information until it's officially printed or listed in the times on on the morning that they do it so when the times came out you know i rushed down to the paper shop like six o'clock in the morning (laughs) (laughs) looked through the list sure enough my name was there that's when i i believed it well it was 
hugely well deserved. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be demanding to go into any <laughs> restaurant. Call me by MBE. Yeah, by my MBE. <laughs> right. No, but I don't. I never used it like that. People have asked me. You know, I, I never used it like that because in the beginning I wouldn't use it at all. But I thought that's such a British thing, so churlish. If you're Sir this or Dame that, Norman J. MBE, don't be ashamed to to use it. So then I insisted it was used on everything, my passport, everywhere. And the funny thing is that when I travel to um, Commonwealth or former Commonwealth countries, they always address me as Sir Norman J. Just <laughs> <laughs> Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you're always Sir Norman J. It's great. What advice would you give to a young black DJ? Well, it doesn't any, have to be. It doesn't any, have to be black DJ. Yeah, yeah. yeah any yeah. DJ. Oh. From any descent, yeah. ethnicity, yeah. race, sexuality, yeah. to make it to make it big like you. Well, different times, different rules, and different music platforms now. You know, luckily, I've said this on a few occasions. I'm glad I was around before the internet. Yeah. So it was a natural process, and if you were discerning enough, you'd have to go out and find it and discover it yourself, and that's part of. The, attraction the journey the process of discovery now it's click download instant gratification i'm not condemning that but i'm glad i didn't have to go through that because if i was starting out today you know i'd be just you know another pebble in the sand but I'm, i'm glad looking back it happened the way it did it was a natural organic rise um like i've said you know on previous occasions i've spent more time being unfamous and unpaid and unrecognized than I have been recognized and getting paid. I think it's been all worth it. Yeah. And, you know, there's still things to do. My enthusiasm hasn't dampened at all. You know, there's loads of great young bedroom DJs out there who are, who are making waves. There's loads of sort of great young designers, people of color, and are now finding, you know, an equal platform. That's the most important thing for me. So you're judged on, on your merits not because of your religion or the color of your skin. You know, a W is still a W no matter what color he or she is. <laughs> Won't swear on there. You know, but the fact that guys like you can do podcasts, it's amazing. You know, I would have given my eye tooth to do, to be and do what you're doing 30, 40 years ago. How would you like to be remembered? Uh, how would I like to be remembered? Or can I twist that? I hope I'm never forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. I love that. um, It would come to the end of the podcast episode, but Norman, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're an absolute legend of a man. My pleasure to talk to you as well. It feels like we're conversing like old friends. It's it's great. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me on.